The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... It's time for the annual American Council of the Blind Legislative Seminar and hear an update on the accessible currency case. Welcome to ACB Reports for February 2008. This month, approximately 150 members of various state and special interest affiliates of the American Council of the Blind will journey to Washington, D.C. to participate in the organization's annual legislative seminar. This event will be held on February 10th through the 12th and will include a visit to Capitol Hill to meet with various members of Congress. Eric Bridges from the ACB National Office joins us to discuss this important meeting. Eric, you've been a participant in the seminar before, but this year you're conducting it. That's right, Mike. I actually have been uh, coming to these since uh, 1999 when I was in uh, National Alliance of Blind Students and then as an employee of National Industries for the Blind. I would come uh, each year and attend. This is the first time that I will be preparing and leading one of these events. This year I'm happy to say that we have three legislative imperatives and uh, one other complementary issue that we're going to be dealing with. The first one centers around uh, website accessibility to websites that act as e-commerce sites. The challenges that the disability community, but more specifically the blindness community, has had in getting Title III clarified vis-a-vis the Internet. The second issue deals with what people today like to call quiet cars or hybrid vehicles and the lack of sound emitted from these vehicles that cause blind or visually impaired folks to be put into hazardous situations while traveling independently on streets and roadways, and the need for federal funding to research technologies that would allow these vehicles to be identifiable to people who are blind or visually impaired when they're out in the community. The third issue is one of very deep interest to many of our members, and it's the digital TV transition. That particular issue has a couple of components folded up into it that we're going to be covering. As you know, February 17th of 2009, the whole country goes digital with a metaphorical flip of a switch, and those folks that don't currently have cable or satellites, folks that are just receiving their TV through the antenna, will no longer receive reception. It's a big deal. And as part of the transition, there's an organization, COAT, that you and I have spoken about a couple times, that ACB is a very active participant and steering committee member of. And COAT has prepared draft legislation to deal with making technologies and consumer electronics accessible to folks with disabilities. And by way of reminder, COAT is the Coalition of Organizations for Accessible Technology. They have this uh, legislation that we talked about extensively. Has it now been formally introduced? No, it has not. It is considered draft legislation, so it does not have a bill number. However, the House Energy and Commerce Committee has done this on purpose. It's a rather uncommon procedure within Congress where they publicize it to bring relevant individuals from different industries together to negotiate. Generally, what you see is draft legislation 
done behind doors through the negotiating process between the two sides, and then it gets introduced, and it has a bill number and co-sponsors and all of that. You mentioned a supplemental issue for the seminar. What is that issue? It's a complementary issue regarding the Randolph Shepard program and the need for there to be continuing education on Capitol Hill of what the Randolph Shepard program is, who's employed by the Randolph Shepard program, and where folks are employed under the program, and, and the good things that are going on within the program and the challenges that it has and will have. What we've done is, through a coalition that ACB is a member of, we are arranging for a Capitol Hill briefing that will take place most likely in the month of February, but it will be like a breakfast or a luncheon briefing that ACB will be prominent at and uh, a couple of other organizations as well to talk about the issues of the day within the Randolph Shepard program as well as to educate Hill staff and members about what's going on. This is a program that means a lot to the blindness community but at different times has received what I would characterize as some publicity that may not always be accurate. It's a good way for our members to go up on the Hill and say, we understand that you may not know as much about this issue and that this issue is important, so please come to this briefing and learn more. So it's sort of an education process, as, as is a large part of what uh, members of ACB do on the Hill and you as a staff person do on the Hill. It's a continuing education process. In the seminar itself, obviously you'll have sessions dealing with each of the uh, topics that you just mentioned, including RSVA, so that people who make the Hill visits are themselves educated, at least to the point that they can go to Capitol Hill and be reasonably comfortable discussing these issues as they hand out the uh, information that you have prepared for them to distribute to their senators and representatives. What other sessions will there be during the seminar? We've invited a representative from the Department of Justice to come, most likely on that Sunday, to talk about issues dealing with disability that the Justice Department is currently dealing with. And, you know, it could range from web accessibility issues to service animal stuff to really about anything that Justice is currently dealing with. I have a, a very good colleague of mine who works in a congressional office that is going to be coming to talk to the attendees about what makes a good Hill meeting from his perspective, from the other side of the table. We've also got a little role-playing activity that we're going to do as well with someone playing the part of a, of a member of Congress and someone playing as a constituent coming in to lobby. It's a good way to ease folks' nervousness and stuff to be able to watch some of this as well, especially if you're there for the first time. Those who are not able to attend can get information on the imperatives from the ACB office and contact their representatives and senators by way of email, telephone, whatever works, and uh, still participate. Yes. Being here in Washington and going up and physically visiting these offices, while that's very important, there's a lot that can be done on these very same issues back in the districts and out in the states by contacting your folks that you may know in the congressmen or senators' district offices to let them know that you are an, a 
an active member of ACB and that you care about these issues and, and these are issues that mean a lot to the blindness community. It doesn't just have to be here in Washington. And in fact, many folks that I speak to, Mike, have developed excellent relationships with the schedulers and the folks that do the local stuff for the members of Congress and senators. It's a good way to do grassroots advocacy. It has to happen in order for the Hill visits to really work. Otherwise, you go to the Hill once a year and then they don't hear from you anymore and they forget or it gets swept under the rug or whatever. Anything else you want to talk about, uh, either related to the seminar or other things going on in Washington right now with the government? There's just a, a ton of things that are happening. As you know, this is an election year, and so Congress's legislative agenda is going to be, um, I guess the diplomatic way to put it is abbreviated. The legislative working days, I think they'll have most likely for the, the remainder of the year, they'll only be in Washington and doing work probably three days a week. You know, the rest of the time will be spent back in the states doing their re-election campaigning. So it's a challenging time as an advocate or a lobbyist to try and get your agenda moved. But having said that, you know, I think that ACB has a good shot at getting these initiatives moved because they are hot topics. They are topics that other organizations are also talking about on the Hill. So us being able to get traction is a big deal with some of these issues, and I think we can. Eric Bridges is the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. Hello, I'm Art Hadley from the International Association of Audio Information Services, IAAIS for short. Your local reading service is partnering with IAAIS and National Public Radio in an exciting three-year project to research and develop a personalized audio information service. This service will be designed so blind and low vision people can listen to their choice of reading service programming at their convenience rather than at a time dictated by the station. But we need your help. Please support your reading service by participating in a survey about your experience with radios, TVs, computers, and other such technologies. To sign up, call survey coordinator Daniel Schwab at 1-800-329-4274 or email dschwab at npr.org. That's D-S-C-H-W-A-B at npr.org. And give your name, telephone, and or email address, city and state. Again, that's Daniel Schwab at 1-800-329-4274 or dschwab at npr.org. Thanks for your help. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. In the fall of 2006, the American Council of the Blind became a plaintiff in a lawsuit which hopes to force the U.S. government to produce paper currency which can be readily identified through touch as well as by low vision. Jeff Levitke is the attorney handling the case. He addressed the assembly during the ACB National Convention in Minneapolis last summer. We've been at this litigation now for over five years. We started in uh, May of 2002. I'm sure that many of you know that um, this case has had important ramifications um, in many different areas. I represent the American Council of the Blind uh, in this case and two individual plaintiffs as well. Now, this is a very important case because there are, in the United States, uh, the numbers are not exact, but over a million legally blind adults, uh, that is, for Social Security purposes. And um, because this case is currently in litigation, 
I have to be circumspect about um, the specifics of what I'm going to say, and I think, therefore, that I'm going to try to give you an overview of the case uh, without getting into issues of litigation strategy or things of that nature, which would not be appropriate for me to discuss in a public forum. First, this issue has been pending for a very long time. In 1983, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing issued a report recommending that the Treasury develop an electronic currency reader for use by people with visual impairments. In 1995, the National Academy of Sciences conducted an extensive review of accessibility features in currency. And they came up with a number of recommendations to the Department of the Treasury to insert in currency various types of accessibility features. The American Council of the Blind adopted resolutions on this topic uh, in 1972, 1977, 1978, 1980, 1992, and again in 2004. And so as you can see, this is an issue that's been ongoing for a very long time. And indeed, um, no less an authority than the United States House of Representatives in 1997 adopted a resolution. And parenthetically, I will note that this resolution was adopted with the support and indeed the drafting assistance of the National Federation of the Blind. The resolution, quote, strongly encourages the Secretary of the Treasury and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to incorporate cost-effective tactile features into the design changes, thereby including the blind and visually impaired community in independent currency usage, end quote. You can see why I became interested in this case. Well, one of the reasons is I can't very often tell the difference myself between the money, and it's um, an area which I think is very important because this case doesn't only involve people who are blind, it also involves millions and millions of Americans who have low vision. So it's a case which has just enormous ramifications for people from all walks of life and all socioeconomic groups. Unfortunately, the government's response to this litigation has not been uh, in my view, helpful. Their response is essentially, look, we make currency available to everyone. That's their response. They say, we make it available for everyone. We don't tell the blind they cannot use currency. <laughs> well, suffice to say, the judge didn't buy that argument. <laughs> And, in fact, I recall during the oral argument in the case before Judge Robertson of the United States District Court uh, for the District of uh, Columbia, the government position, the position of the Department of Justice was essentially the anti-discrimination statutes, they don't require us to go out and spend money to make things or currency accessible or, for that matter, anything else accessible. That was their position, and I, I recall Judge Robertson's uh, response to that um, point. He, he, he asked the government counsel, he said to him, uh, counsel, look around you, look at this courtroom. The courtroom, by the way, in, in the Federal District Court in Washington, D.C., was recently rebuilt. He said, look around you, and, and what do you see in this courtroom? 
What you see are ramps. You see in the elevators, you see accessible signage. So the argument that the government isn't required to spend money to make things accessible, it just doesn't fly. And it, nor is it borne out, for that matter, by the precedent from the Supreme Court. Now, the government has also said that changing currency, changing the design of currency would undermine its acceptance in foreign countries. Well, it's interesting because Judge Robertson didn't buy that argument either, obviously. And he said, uh, and it, it, it just makes sense, the U.S. currency is about the strength of the economy. When people want dollars overseas, it's not because of the way the dollars are designed. It's because that reflects the underlying strength of the U.S. economy. In actual point of fact, a tactile feature on U.S. currency would go a long way to reducing counterfeiting. <laughs> Approximately 44% of domestically passed counterfeit notes are reproduced with color digital copying devices. And a tactile feature on currency could not be reproduced in such a manner. Moreover, other major currencies which would be desirable targets for counterfeiters have adopted such features. The euro has foil strips on the currency. They have foil holograms on the currency. And these features serve two purposes. One, to deter counterfeiting, and two, to assist people with visual impairments in denomination. In this respect, I would note that the United States is virtually alone of all the major countries in not having currency which in some way can be denominated by the blind. Um, in fact, in the uh, 1995 study conducted by the National Academy of Sciences, they conducted a detailed study of currency in over 120 countries. They found that 24 countries adopted uh, large denomination numerals for the benefit of the low vision community. 167 out of 171 uh, had adopted a clearly differentiated color scheme again for the benefit of the low vision community. And I want to make the point here that this case is also for the benefit of the low vision community as well. At the time of the 1995 study, there were 16 countries that used raised intaglio print, which is, has a tactile quality. And the vast majority of currencies were different sized for different denominations. In 2002, the euro was introduced. The euro is obviously a major currency. It's important to know that the euro was designed with the contribution of various experts, including the European Blind Union. They participated from the ground floor in the design of the currency. 
And in fact, the euro has a number of tactile features which are identifiable to touch. Uh, specifically, on the edges of the euro, uh, there is a raised intaglio print, which helps people with visual impairments denominate banknotes. And there is also a foil feature. The foil feature has a glossy feel, which is distinguishable from the remaining surface of the banknote. And these features vary in shape and location by the denomination. Also, by the way, the euro increases approximately six to seven millimeters for each denomination. The Canadian currency is another currency which was redesigned in 2001, once again, after consultation with blind organizations in Canada. And the Canadian currency, and I'm just curious, have many people here had experience with the Canadian currency? I, yeah. that's good. Well, then, as you know, the Canadian currency has a series of symbols which are essentially formed by groupings of six raised dots. And uh, these dots are embossed and back-coded to increase their durability. In this litigation, we received an affidavit from the president of the company that makes Canadian banknotes. And here's what he said in his affidavit. Based on our knowledge of the quality of U.S. banknote paper and the variables affecting TFB performance, uh, TFB is the term used in Canada for the feature for the blind, we believe it probable that we could develop a specific formulation for the U.S. banknote which would create a TFB feature that the visually impaired would find useful for denominating U.S. banknotes, end quote. Now, the government has talked uh, about the cost involved in making the changes which we're seeking. And I'm going to give you what the costs are for three features which we proposed to the government. These are not the only features, but they're the three features which we proposed. To create an embossed feature such as is used in the Canadian currency, the initial capital cost, which essentially are cost in new machinery required to manufacture the embossed feature, the initial one-time capital outlay would be $45.5 million. The additional annual cost, which are essentially is increased labor required to staff the new machinery, would be $15,264,000 per year. To manufacture U.S. banknotes with a foil feature, which would be perceptible to the touch, the initial capital cost would be $51.5 million, and the additional annual cost would be $15,330,000. To manufacture a banknote which has a small perforation feature, which would be perceptible to the touch, the initial capital cost would be $75 million, and the additional annual cost would be $8,324,000. These costs reflect the cost to modify all banknotes, including the $1 bill. I would also like to say that uh, with respect to the issue of the additional cost involved, uh, the cost to produce low vision features, such as a larger denomination numeral, 
or strikingly different dominant colors on each banknote are significantly smaller. Those costs are not significant when considering the resources available to the United States Department of Treasury. With respect to the issue of electronic currency readers, because this always comes up in any discussion of manufacturing banknotes which are accessible to the visually impaired. In 1983, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing conducted the study, and they urged the Department of Treasury to fund, essentially, research uh, and uh, to develop a prototype of a cheap, portable unit. That study, essentially, conducted dust. And the 1995 study from the National Academy of Sciences made similar recommendations. Once again, no action was taken. Now, in 2004, after this lawsuit was commenced, the uh, Bureau of Engraving and Printing issued a request for quotations to industry, uh, seeking the development of a pocket-sized device with a target retail price of $35 or less. And they were prepared to fund the prototype up to a cost of $50,000. Now, there's a few problems with electronic currency readers from our position. One and foremost, the technology is already there to make them unnecessary. There is no reason why people who are blind should have to be conspicuous in using an electronic currency reader. when, in fact, accessibility features can be put on the banknote itself. And in any event, the government said that they would not subsidize the cost of the reader, which, by the way, currently are running at about $270 each. And significantly, when the Department of Justice ran their own test on these devices, on the newer series of currency, they found a 25% do-not-read rate, which is clearly unacceptable. <laughs> So that is basically an overview. We are currently in the middle of litigation in this case. It's now at the Court of Appeals. I don't want to go into uh, too much detail about what's happening at the uh, Court of Appeals and, and, as I said, some of our litigation strategy. But I, I think, uh, suffice to say, that uh, we are um, very pleased with the outcome of the case at the District Court. And uh, we believe we... Uh, won, and we won on the facts, and we won on the law. Thank you. Oral arguments related to the government's appeal of the case were given in November of 2007. No ruling on the appeal has been made as of the production time for this program in mid-January of 2008. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.